Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. In our recent podcast, we talked about American rocket pioneer Robert H. Goddard and his vision of sending a rocket to the moon. Today, we'll explore how that vision became a reality as we welcome the renowned and deeply insightful science journalist Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon, Voices from the Moon, and A Passion for Mars. program. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. So uh, my own personal fascination with space began uh, in my childhood, and I think that's probably pretty common for a lot of people who catch the bug. And I understand uh, you have a, an amazing story about meeting Neil Armstrong when you were a uh-huh. teenager, but your fascination with space goes back uh, well before that. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, you know, when I was roughly five years old and, you know, just completely entranced with the idea of visiting other worlds. You know, I had astronomy books, picture books with, you know, at that time, artist conceptions, because that's all we had other than fuzzy telescopic pictures of what it would be like to, you know, stand on the moon or stand on Mars or you know, float next to Jupiter and its moons. And, you know, those were like magic portals for me. I felt like I was being transported to these other worlds. And it was completely captivating and mesmerizing to me as a young child. And that stayed with me. And, of course, in those books, they always had astronauts going to these places, even though, you know, hardly anybody had been in space. I mean, Al Shepard flew his Mercury flight right before I, like a m- month, a little more than a month before I turned five. So I don't remember that. I do remember the aftermath of John Glenn's orbital flight, but things were starting to pick up, accelerate. I remember very vividly when Ed White became the first American to walk in space in June of 65, right before I turned nine. And the pictures from that spacewalk came out and they were all over Life magazine. And, you know, that was like adding, you know, voltage to the power grid for me. Um, At that point, you know, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that guy. And so by the time um, the Apollo mission started flying, I was in junior high, glued to the TV for every mission, had my little, you know, mission control in the den with my models of the spacecraft and the maps of the moon and issues of time and newsweek magazine which back then were some of the only ways of finding out what the missions were going to be doing and i just kind of vicariously went along trying to you know experience the missions that way um and yeah like you said i was really lucky to be able to meet some of the astronauts in fact i met neil armstrong in in uh, september of 71 uh at, at the age of 15 at nasa headquarters after he had 
started working there and I got his autograph and I was like Nirvana, you know, to meet him. But even before that, in 69, in April of 69, my parents, as a kind of advanced birthday present for my 13th birthday, took me down to the Kennedy Space Center. And just by absolute chance, um, we were staying at the motel where all the astronauts stayed when they were at the Cape training. So I met like seven astronauts that day and Al Bean was the first one I met. And he was so kind to me and he was uh, even at that time into art and I had him sign, I had them all sign my drawing pad with a sketch that I had made of the Apollo spacecraft. So we, he kind of connected with me about that too. And um, yeah, it was all part of a just really um, amazing time. I mean, you really, for a space fanatic growing up in that time frame when the Apollo missions were, were happening was just the best you could ask for. So you've uh, obviously written extensively about the moon, but you also worked on the Viking program very early on in your career and you're uh, in interviews very sort of humble yeah. about the role that you played <laughs> in, in all that. But um, can you tell us about the day that Viking landed on the surface of Mars? Because I imagine the excitement that day for those working on the program must have uh, rivaled that of uh, July of 1969 when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing to be on the inside of a space mission. Um, I've sort of come to appreciate it more. I mean, I appreciated it at the time, but even more as I've looked back on it as an adult. Because when you're 20 years old, um, you really are not capable of, at least I wasn't capable of really taking in the the dimensions of the experience, the magnitude of it, the sense of being involved in something of the scope of a of a mission like Viking, which was really at that time kind of the equivalent of the moon landings, like you say, because it was the first time anybody successfully landed on Mars. But I do vividly remember the morning of the landing. I was up in the geology rooms. Um, I was a student intern and really kind of very low on the totem pole, pretty much as low as you could get but still there, part of the team, and sitting with some of the geologists, watching um, the monitors, waiting for the first pictures to come down after the landing. The landing was at just, I think it was like 5.30 in the morning or 5.45 in the morning Pacific time at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. And my professor, my geology professor, Dr. Thomas Much, M-U-T-C-H, Tim Much as we called him, um, was on the JPL feed explaining what was about to happen. He was the leader of the camera team. And he was my geology professor from Brown University. So I'm watching him being interviewed by the JPL commentator. And he's leaning forward, waiting for the first picture to come in. And then it switches on our, on our monitors. We could see the, the actual data coming in, just like the world could. But we probably saw it a fraction of a second earlier. And it was just five lines of data that came down the screen from top to bottom like that, like, like they were being dragged by an army of ants. And then there was a pause and then five 
more lines of data were added, and then five more. And so it was like a window was opening from one side of the screen to the other. And all of a sudden, we began to notice little pebbles and little drifts of sediment. And it was phenomenal. I mean, it was like time standing still. And to realize that we were looking for the first time in human history, we're looking at the surface of Mars from the surface. So that has remained very vivid in my memory. I wrote a book called A Passion for Mars, um, which I guess is still available, uh, I guess, if you go to Amazon or something, where I write about that experience and a lot of other things having to do with Mars exploration. That was that was very cool. But I have to say, the Viking experience also planted seeds of doubt in my mind about what I wanted to do with my life, because I realized that I didn't really want to be a practicing scientist. So I came back from Viking and continued at Brown going into my junior year with a kind of an identity crisis that didn't really get resolved until a few years after college when I started writing about space exploration and that turned out to be a perfect fit for me because it kind of combined the the left brain aspects of the science with the right brain creativity that i needed and in between there i had done about a year and a half at the air and space museum working for farouk el baz the egyptian-born geologist who helped train the apollo astronauts but was mostly at that time studying deserts and comparing the deserts of the earth with with mars and i actually published a scientific paper uh with him and one other scientist as co-authors so it was a cool little progression that's fantastic i kind yeah. of consider farouk albaz to be almost as legendary of a figure as uh, the astronauts and he has a career that extends well beyond uh just the apollo missions as i understand it right well he started out um as a geologist uh, uh, who became fascinated with the moon and turned himself into kind of an encyclopedia of the moon. And in that capacity, went to work for a company called Belcom, where a number of geologists worked as advisors to NASA on the scientific aspects of the moon missions. So Farouk, ended up being one of the guys who did the training of the astronauts to observe the moon from orbit and get them fired up with curiosity about what you could discover looking out the windows of a, you know, little windows of an Apollo command module and observing the moon with your own eyes from that orbital height of 69 statute miles, 60 or nautical miles. So Farouk was already a major major figure before i encountered him as an as a newly minted you know bachelor's degree in geology by that time i had figured out that i didn't want to go to grad school so it was really it was a nice stop along the way it didn't really solve my identity crisis and actually after i had worked for farouk i went off and did the backpack and guitar thing in europe for about six months and then when i came back i called one of my professors, I moved to Boston just because I thought it would be a cool place to live. I called one of my professors from Brown, Jim Head, who had also been very involved in training the astronauts on the Apollo missions. And I said to him, what do you know about in Boston that's space related? And he was the one that suggested 
Call Sky and Telescope magazine. And that was the beginning of my writing career. That's fantastic. And that was 1980. That was the fall of 1980. Wow. So science journalism was on the rise. And that, that turned out to be, I must have been, I've been incredibly lucky. I was incredibly lucky to go to Brown, where Tim Much was, and to have an entree into that, to Viking. I was in, lucky to arrive at Sky and Telescope at a time when science journalism was on the rise. And I could start freelancing for other magazines as well and then in 84 was when i had the idea to write a man on the moon so i absolutely want to talk about your extensive work regarding the apollo moon landings but one last question on uh, mars that i had is in our uh previous podcast, we interviewed Dr. Robert Zubrin, who's the founder of the Mars Society and uh, an old friend of Elon Musk. And he's a strong advocate for human uh, Mars exploration, just as you are. Uh, but he's kind of a controversial figure to some extent, uh, I think, in, in the community. And he's even uh, kind of criticized NASA very aggressively on some of their uh, comments about everything from the threat uh, radiation poses to astronauts in space, as well as planetary protection protocols that NASA has regarding uh, microbes from Earth going to Mars and vice versa. Uh, can you uh, comment at all on sort of how sure. he's viewed uh, in the community? Because he's a very passionate advocate for space exploration, which is certainly positive. Well, you know, Bob is a classic example of a disruptor. We need disruptors in this world because we need to be shaken out of our mindset in order to make progress. If we get, and this is what I, by the way, as a kind of a side note here, for the last 10 years, what I've been doing mostly is working on mindset as a factor in success and failure in space projects. And this was at the request of NASA that I started this work. I'll tell you something that you probably don't know about Bob Zubrin, which is that he and I went to the same high school. Uh, on, wow. In Great, yeah, on Long Island in Great Neck, New York. Great Neck North Senior High School. I was class of 74, and I think Bob was class of 70. So we didn't actually overlap. We had some of the same teachers because we've compared notes about this. So something in the water. I mean, Peter Diamandis, who you probably heard of and is also a very well-known figure now and, and, a, and a, a, a challenger of, of paradigms, also went to Great Neck North. I think he was four years behind me. Probably, I think he graduated in 78. So something in the water in Great Neck, New York, I guess. But going back to Bob, um, Bob, you know, disruptors are strong personalities. They have to be to, to do what they do. And Bob has been a really influential figure. And I credit him with changing the paradigm about how you go to Mars into a much more um, in-situ resource utilization mindset, right? And that's I what mean, Elon Musk's mindset is, I think, as well, and some of his ideas about Mars exp exploration. Right. And I think Elon has just picked up the ball from Bob. In, in many ways. Now, Elon is a disruptor in a different way because Elon challenged the paradigm of how you design rockets. He, and we're, we're, we're sort of, we'll, have, we'll circle back to your question about Bob, but, um, but in a way they're, they're, they're sort of similar. 
I interviewed Elon in 2011 because I I wanted to understand, you know, this guy's getting so much so much attention for starting this rocket company and saying he's going to do all these great things and he's going to lower the cost of spaceflight, which I had already zeroed in on well before this. I had zeroed in in my own mind and in my public talks as the barrier. Because if you look at the, the two sides of the curve, you've got support, which is proportional to, to the level of public interest, and you have resources. So the level of support has remained pretty much constant over the years. I mean, I, I'm not a pollster. I'm not, a, I'm not somebody who gets into the nitty gritty of polls. So I, I may be missing some ups and downs here. But basically, the level of support has remained fairly consistent, and so is the level of financial support for NASA. But the barrier to going back to the moon, sending humans to Mars, has been the cost. So if you can lower the cost side of the equation, you can make real progress. And that's when, that's why when Elon and SpaceX came along, I was really intrigued, and I wanted to find out okay, what are these guys really going to do from an engineering standpoint that's different? And the way Elon explained it to me, what I came away with was that these guys did something that nobody had ever done before, which is to start with a blank sheet of paper and say, okay, how do we optimize for cost? How do we design a system from the beginning that is low cost, and reliable, and it turns out those two things are intimately linked. And by doing, by starting with that initial condition, if you will, they then said, okay, you wanna have both stages use the same kind of engine. So you don't have to manufacture two different kinds of engines. You want them to be the same diameter so you can use the same milling machines. They, went through the entire system with that mindset. Almost the way Southwest Airlines started by saying, we're only going to use 737s so we don't have to train our workforce on more than one airplane, that kind of thing. And out of that came Falcon 9 and, and you've seen the rest. Now, this could not have happened if Elon Musk was not already a billionaire who had a lot of money to throw at the problem. Of course. And God knows they were hanging by a thread at various times and they almost didn't get by. Thankfully they have, and they've done things that NASA would never have been allowed to do, like recovering the first stage of the Falcon 9 by you know, this propulsive landing business, which by the way, turns out to be crucial to human Mars missions, right? When I was writing A Passion for Mars in the mid-2000s, and I would talk to Rob Manning, who's an old friend from Pathfinder days, Mars Pathfinder, which I wrote about, and met him and the team doing that and stayed friends. Rob said to me, you know, the, we don't know how to land a ship that's big enough to carry humans on Mars because you're flying into your exhaust plume at supersonic speeds or... Now, I guess it was not supersonic by that time. I guess it's hurricane force winds blowing your plume back at you. We don't know how to do that. We don't know if we can do that. Elon did an existence proof 
of a retropropulsive landing in Martian conditions because at the beginning of the burn, you're up at 100,000 feet where you're basically operating in Martian conditions. NASA would never have been able to fund at this stage of the game a test program to show that, to, to, to try that out and prove it. So if SpaceX has done nothing else, to me, it's been incredibly valuable just to do that. But of course they have done so much more. And now with the success of the Crew Dragon and the, the prototyping of the Starship, and that's gonna be very interesting to see if he can have the same success with Starship that he's had with the Falcon 9 and the Falcon, well, the Falcon Heavy has only flown, what, a couple of times. But I mean, um, and, and you know, from the standpoint of mindset in success and failure, they've had their stumbles, right? They've, they've had the moments when they had to admit that they didn't know everything they thought they knew and that you can't fool mother nature as Dick Feynman said, Professor Feynman said about Challenger, you know, nature always wins. You can't do an end run around physics just because you wanna fly a space shuttle you know, so many times a year with so many people and so many dollars. But we need these disruptors. We need them desperately. We need people who can challenge the, par the, the, the conventional wisdom. Now that doesn't mean that every disruptive idea is right. You have to get up, you have to step up and actually make it work. And that has to, again, go by the laws of physics and proper um, uh, behaviors like testing, exhaustive and realistic testing. I teach a whole course on this stuff. Bob Zubrin, like Elon Musk, has ticked some people off with a strong personality that's not really worried about who they, whose feathers they ruffle. And that's a strength if you're trying to be a disruptor. But it's a potential drawback um, because you do ruffle feathers, you do get people annoyed at you. And I have to say, and Bob knows, you know, I'm sure Bob knows that I feel this way. I don't agree with everything Bob says. I don't agree that space radiation is a no worry. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a big deal from everything I've heard. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a medical guy. I'm not a biology guy, but from everything I've heard, it's going to be a tough one to solve. Even when you get to Mars, you know, you are uh, experiencing um, a certain amount of radiation when you go EVA, when you do excursions on the surface. Uh, so it's going to be something to deal with. And then there are a lot of other things that have to deal, you have to deal with. I'll give you one example that comes from one of my great mentors in the success and failure work that I've been doing. And that's um, an engineer manager named James Van Lack, who is formerly of Net Langley, Langley Space Center in, in Virginia, NASA Langley. He was at Houston for quite a while as the, um, I believe the deputy program manager on the shuttle Mir missions. And he's just really sharp and really um, insightful. And he told me that when he gives public talks, he will sometimes say to the audience, if you're on a flight to Mars and the toilet breaks, everybody dies. 
And he says it's a laugh line because everybody thinks, ha, 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 that's a potty joke. Well, no, it's not really that. It's that you're going to Mars in a system that has to be a, uh, self-contained to an extraordinary degree. You're not getting new supplies. You've got to recycle your air, food, and nutrients and water. So and many elements there that are mission critical. You do that. Yeah, but the toilet is a big part of how you recycle all those things. So if you're losing a certain amount of water per day and you multiply that by a thousand day mission, you know, or however long it takes to add up the trip there and the trip back, you got problems. You could so die of thirst I, on a journey. Yeah. It, yeah. So I feel that Mars is the Mount Everest for the human species in terms of exploration. And I think we have a long way to go before we're ready to try that. Now, there's a, you know, it's a risky endeavor and you have to accept a certain amount of risk, but you don't want to accept risk blindly. You want to do it in a way that where you can manage the risk as well as possible. On the subject of disruptors, would you say that intentionally or even unintentionally that President Kennedy might have been the ultimate disruptor when he made his pledge to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I like that a lot. I like that description of him. Yeah. And I think it fits with his his whole um, you know, mindset coming into the presidency of, you know, we're a younger generation than you've had in this office before. The guy who came before him, Dwight Eisenhower, was I don't know exactly how many years older, but he, Kennedy had been born in 1917, and Eisenhower had been born in the late 18 of the late 1800s. So Kennedy made a point of saying in his inaugural speech, "The torch is being passed to a new generation born in this century." So Kennedy's whole thing was new frontier, new younger mindset, and yeah, part of that is. We're going to challenge the existing paradigms. We're going to challenge the accepted ways of thinking about things. And the moon program was probably the most visible way in which he did that. We, but there uh, were a lot of disruptors in Apollo. I mean, John Hobolt, right, who championed LOR. If, if they hadn't had LOR, they wouldn't have gotten to the moon. Yeah, I understand that before John Hobolt, uh, Werner von Braun was talking about the possibility of doing something almost similar to uh, Elon Musk and landing a very large rocket-type craft backwards onto the surface of the moon. Right, and that's not impossible. Um, if you're if you're von Braun and you're thinking about doing it on the moon, there's no atmosphere to to, to be a problem. So you don't have that issue. The problem that they did have as they started to think about it, a 60-foot high vehicle uh, that would actually carry out the landing is giving visibility to the pilots as they came down. And also the center of gravity would be pretty high off the ground in that design. I think the you know, if you want to learn more about this, I would really recommend the audience to look up the book. Uh, Apollo, The Race to the Moon by Charles Murray and Catherine Cox. Beautiful book, brilliant book, where they really get into the heads of the engineers who were working all the way through Apollo, the engineers and the flight controllers. 
and they talk about that. They talk about the difficulties of Earth orbit rendezvous and that very large ship having to land on the lunar surface. We uh, started off. But, but let me just add oh, one sure. thing, which is that the biggest problem with EOR, Earth orbit rendezvous, was you needed two Saturn V's to do it because you had so much mass, you had to refuel it before you could send it to the moon. And then you had all this mass you're bringing down into the lunar gravity well. The leap, the leap of insight, not so much from Hubble, but from the people whose work he championed, was, wait a minute, we don't have to bring all that mass down into the lunar gravity well. We can keep a large fraction of the mass in orbit, although we don't need nearly as much as we would otherwise, even in orbit. And then we can have this much smaller vehicle to go down to the surface, a very specialized job, go back to lunar orbit, and then we can do the whole mission with one Saturn V. So we started off our podcast uh, with a three-part series on the space race. And I think uh, you and I would probably agree with the fact that the Apollo moon landings were one of the greatest, if not the greatest adventure in all of human history. Uh, but the concept of landing uh, a man on the moon, that was not really an idea that sprang from President John F. Kennedy's mind or even from you know the United States government or Lyndon Johnson. That was an idea that had been around for a long time uh, prior to that. We just finished a podcast recently about American uh, rocket scientist Robert H. Goddard, who was talking about in 1920, as I'm sure you know, wrote about in 1920, uh, sending rockets to the moon and was mocked by the New York Times for, for doing so. So uh, my question is, and I'm, I'm told that historians don't like to deal with counterfactuals a lot. They don't like all the people who want to ask what would have happened if circumstances in history were a little bit different. Let's play what if. But I can't help but wonder, uh, in your opinion, do you think that the United States or any other nation would have landed human beings on the moon decades ago if it weren't for President Kennedy's pledge? Do you think eventually someone would have attempted it in the 20th century? The uh, Soviet Union had plans to do so, but I understand that Nikita Khrushchev's own son uh, once claimed that the Soviet Union wasn't really even close to doing so in the way that the United States of America uh, was able to do so. Well, um, you know, NASA, even before Kennedy became president, NASA was thinking about sending humans to the moon. And I believe the name Apollo was even floating around. I could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, they were already looking at human missions to the moon. And that's why when Kennedy said, let's do it by the end of the decade, they were in a position to say, okay, because it wasn't something that caught them by surprise. They you know, in fact, there's that famous letter from Kenneth memo from Kennedy to, to Vice President Johnson saying, what can we do to beat the Soviets and score a victory that will inspire the rest of the world? He was worried particularly about countries that might align themselves with the Soviets in, in the Cold War. He wanted something that would really be impressive in space where we could do it before the Soviets could. And, you know, N Johnson went to NASA and asked them to weigh in. And of course, landing humans on the moon was already on their minds. So it's not that Kennedy 
planted the idea in NASA's mind. It's that Kennedy saw space as the new arena of the Cold War, whereas his predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower, had thought of space as mostly an arena for national security missions like reconnaissance satellites, the Corona series of satellites that were already in operation by the time Kennedy got on board. Um, and that's why Eisenhower famously underreacted to Sputnik in, in sharp contrast to the American public who reacted very strongly to Sputnik on a, on a gut level of kind of gut level anxiety bordering on terror of what this meant for national security. So Eisenhower already knew about the Corona program and was not worried. In fact, Sputnik gave him a little bit of a, of a help by removing a legal obstacle because there was uncertainty about whether legally a one nation had a right to overfly another nation's territory with a satellite. And once that precedent was set by the Soviet Union, it just wasn't a question anymore. It was just over and done with in that moment. Exactly. So I think the big thing with Apollo was, okay, we've got this go ahead to do it. Now, how do we actually do it? And that's why Apollo was so such an amazing story because they actually figured out over the course of the next you know less than eight years how to do it with some very serious obstacles along the way just to give you one example the f1 engines the monster engines on the saturn V first stage each of which uh produced one and a half million pounds of thrust well they had a potentially showstopper problem called combustion instability that caused a number of F1 engines to blow up during testing. And then back in those days, they didn't have computational fluid dynamics. They didn't have all the high-powered computational tools that we have now. They had to solve the problem by trial and error with very you know, incremental changes to the shape of the baffles and the injector plate and the size of the holes that the kerosene and liquid oxygen would come through and so on and so on and so on. And they finally solved it through that empirical process. Going back to your question of whether we would have gone to the moon if Kennedy hadn't challenged us to do so, Eisenhower was keeping the space program at a low, low simmer. Um, there's a famous story about a meeting. Uh, I believe it's after he had approved Project Mercury, or maybe they were debating trying to remember my memory's failing me a little bit this but this is easy to look up and they were debating you know the amount of investment to make in the space program and somebody at the table a cabinet member i think at eisenhower's was eisenhower's meeting said yeah if we let him go to into space the next thing they're going to want is go to the planets and everybody in the room kind of laughed and so that was the that was the attitude about space before kennedy got in and kennedy was not a space fan. He said as much to Jim Webb in the Oval Office, and I think it was the fall of 62. I, I'm not that interested in space, was what he right. said. Tell me that we're going to get to the moon before the Soviets, because otherwise, why am I spending all this money and these things wreck our budget? Because I'm not that interested in space. Webb, on the other hand, was arguing for a much more broad portfolio for NASA that included robotic missions to the planets and so forth. 
Yeah, and you identified uh, earlier sort of uh, in regards to Mars, this uh, dichotomy between public support and public interest, which exists and is almost fairly stable across time versus political support and money and funding and all that. And I, I suppose both have to, to come together in a lot of cases before we take on these really immense uh, projects. Yeah, and um, Neil Armstrong, uh, there was a symposium that was held at Caltech um, a few years after Apollo ended. Jack Schmidt was doing a, um, uh, a, a kind of a, a residency at Caltech for a little while, and he brought together a bunch of the astronauts, the flight directors, other managers, and they talked about Apollo in a kind of closed-door session. And... I've heard this story from a couple of different people that when it, when it came Neil Armstrong's turn to talk, he got up and he, he started by talking about his farm because, you know, by this time he had um, retired from NASA and was teaching at the University of Cincinnati and he had a farm in, in rural Ohio. And he said, I have a bunch of cows on my farm and I sometimes go and watch them in their, in their field and they seem to wander around aimlessly, but then every once in a while, some organizing event will happen, like somebody comes to the gate with, with uh, something you know, for the cows to eat or whatever, and they all kind of line up and they, they move in a certain direction. They move in the same direction. And he said, then he, then he went to the board and he drew kind of curves, sine wave type curves that represented different forces in history. Um, political support, uh, economy, economic strength, technology, and so forth. And he said what happened with Apollo was that Kennedy came in and all these curves lined up. And so that created the moment that was, you know, possible for Kennedy to propose something as audacious as sending humans to the moon for the kind of money that it would cost and actually have it adopted. So one of the things I think it took space fans a long time to come to grips with was that Apollo was not a model for how you do a space program. Everybody thought all, you know, all we needed was a president to get up and make a speech and everything else would fall into place. Well, we had two different presidents, both of them named Bush, uh, spaced by about 15 years apart. Uh, getting up and saying the same thing, go back to the moon and then on to Mars, and it didn't happen. And that showed that to me, when that happened again uh, with uh, George W. Bush, um, that reinforced to me that the answer was that you had to lower the cost side of the, of the equation. And so that's why I've been a big advocate of, of what SpaceX and other companies, Blue Origin and so forth, are doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one could expect from your early involvement uh, with the Viking program that you could easily spend your entire career writing about Mars and sort of the, the dream after Apollo of one day landing human beings on Mars. But uh, we spoke recently with uh, former NASA historian Alex Rowland on the program, and he talked about sort of working at NASA as a historian while they were landing people on the moon and the the idea that everybody of course realized uh, 
both in NASA and, and in the American public, everybody realized what an immense event this was historically, and there was extensive uh, writing and commentary surrounding it. So I guess my question is, in making your decision to devote years of your life to writing about Apollo with uh, your first book on, on the subject, what was it beyond your own personal passion for it? What was it that drew you to the subject? And what was it that convinced you that something more could be done, that something about these the experiences of these men could be captured in a different and dynamic way? Well, it's funny that you mention Alex. And Alex and I have had our differences of opinion. I think Alex enjoys being in the role of the Grinch from time to time. He's not and a big fan of, of manned space exploration, right. is he? He he's not, and on one level, I understand why he feels the way he does. On a certain level, I understand it because I think we've been sold in the past. We've been sold um, a package deal by NASA and by the whole process of creating NASA programs when it comes to human spaceflight. That really the reality doesn't go along with the expectation. And for me, the space shuttle and the space station programs uh, have that feeling because, you know, Apollo was all about exploration. Okay, there's no way around that. We were going to a place where no humans had gone, not even astronauts had gone. But the shuttle and the station programs were really about um, chasing a conception of space that was um, like a like a, a a bet at the at the blackjack table that we just have a feeling in our bones that we're going to be able to make space flight routine and affordable. We just have a feeling in our so that's the shuttle. We just have a feeling in our bones that space can turn great dividends for. Uh, the for the economy for the for the world in general and for the economy as part of that and that was the space station utilizing space to to create all these you know pharmaceuticals and world changing discoveries and in reality um, it's been more about keeping the human spaceflight program going and keeping it from getting killed by people who don't like human spaceflight. And there have been those people from very early on. I mean, NASA, people don't realize this, but a year after Apollo 11 in 1970, NASA was already fighting for its life. And the human spaceflight program was. Budgets were coming down dramatically. And NASA had had all these grand ideas about what to do next that involved not only the shuttle, but space stations and Mars missions and all these things. And Congress wasn't having any of it and Nixon wasn't having any of it. And the only thing that survived barely was the shuttle. And so that's part of why the shuttle got off on the wrong foot was because they didn't sit down and say, how do we optimize for low cost and reliability the way Elon did? They said, how do we optimize for performance? because they were limited in their budget, but they had to have this just barrel full of requirements, not only for NASA missions, but for 
DOD missions, defense missions. So the shuttle became this all things to all people vehicle instead of being a test bed for how do you make a reusable vehicle that can lower the cost of spaceflight? Anyway, anyway, for me, it's always been about exploration, okay? For me, the lure of Apollo, the continuing fascination with Apollo has been the experience of leaving the home planet and going to another world and what that experience is like, how it, my my goal in writing a man on the moon was to say was to capture in print in a way that I that I realized had not been done yet. What is it like to go to the moon? How does it how did it affect the people who went? And you know, during the time I was writing the book, I used to look at the moon and I used to just really be completely captivated by the thought of having gone there and looking up at the moon and wondering what goes through their heads. And that turns out to be a whole range of reactions, right? Um, some of which are, you know, after you come back in the immediate aftermath, did I really go there? I can't, ah, wow, that's incredible. To, yeah, of course I went there. Yeah, okay, but not dwelling on it. A lot of these guys did not want to dwell on the past. They thought it was the wrong way to live your life, to be have your head in the in the past. So a lot of them were resistant to that. Some of them were more willing to go there more often than others. Um, I did a book, my wife and I, Victoria Cole, did a book called Voices from the Moon, where we we put in a lot of quotes from my interviews, including quotes about that. So the main reason I wrote A Man on the Moon was to get down on paper what the moon experience was and also to show the missions through the eyes of the astronauts. Since then, I've kind of rediscovered Apollo through the lens of human ingenuity and human behavior because it turns out the engineering is only part of the problem. The rocket science is really hard, but it's not the hardest piece. The hardest piece is how do you create the behaviors, the culture, really? How do you create the, the culture that will allow human beings to work together to do something that's never been done before? We hope you'll join us again for the second part of my interview with science journalist Andrew Chaikin 